want to welcome you today as we gather. My name is Brian White. I'm so glad you're here. Um, a couple quick uh, things to think about and consider. Uh, we're going to have two different Holy Lands trips coming up. Um, one is mid-October. Trevor's going to be hosting that. And then I'm going to lead a trip in the spring next year in 2024. Uh, if you're interested, the, the early bird cost for the fall trip uh, is going to cut off in a couple weeks here. And so we do need to make sure if you want to get in, if you want the early bird um, price, you need to get that in. Uh, there's a brochure back there with the dates for the, the spring trip. It'll be right after Easter, uh, April 10 through 20, uh, 2024. And I'm really excited uh, for this experience and it'd be fun uh, for as many of us can go together to be able to share this experience with our church family. And as we're doing this, and, and I think um, the next seven weeks, we're going to be going through the Bible and I'm hoping this will create a platform for us as we go to experience the Holy Lands together. Um, and we're starting that this week. Uh, and, and I kind of talked about that last week uh, where, you know, uh, really want to change some of the focus, um, and we've already done that since COVID, uh, but just, you know, I, I think spending more and more and more and more time in the Bible. I love John Wesley, who's one of my theological heroes, said, you know, we should be a people of the book. And this next series uh, over the next seven weeks is really, really focused to give us a good platform. How does the Bible, the, the overarching picture, and then we'll look um, at some closer questions. One of my favorite questions to ask people is, is the story behind their first Bible. And, you know, I love just what people respond is fascinating. And we have this Hill Spring 101 class. It's a newcomer's class. And uh, when I get to sit down and the first question I ask everyone is, tell me the story when you think about your first Bible. Tell me the story around that. And, you know, the amount of answers are just all over the place. You know, some will tell me about the, the story, the, the Bible that their, their parents used to read them. And, and another one will tell me about getting their third grade Bible in, in Sunday school. But somebody else will tell me, you know, they, they just had one and they'll, they'll tell the conversion story behind that. Or uh, sometimes, you know, people don't even have one and we get the honor of giving them their first Bible. It's just to, to be able to get the insights and the, hear about a person's journey as it intertwines with a Bible is really an amazing thing. I just wonder what comes to mind when you think about your first Bible. Have you ever spent much time really thinking about the Bible? Like I say, over the next couple of weeks, I, I really want to help to get us into our Bibles. And, and, and we're going to look at the big picture uh, of the Bible, but also I want to talk about how it's put together and, you know, how God was in the midst of this um, and, and really answer some questions that come up quite a bit about the Bible. And, and this next several weeks series is really based on a Disciple Bible Study, which is a, a class that we have uh, periodically. And we start in the fall with Genesis. We go all the way to Revelation and um, just be able to spend time with that. But what is the Bible? What is the Bible? How does the Bible describe itself? Well, there's, there's one passage that really helps us. It's in 2 Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. There's so many great 316 uh, verses. Um, you know, what, what's a good 316? Yeah, yeah. What about Leviticus 316? All fat belongs to the Lord. 
But 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. And I just want to, that, that is our premise. All scripture, not just the parts we like, but all scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient and equipped for every good work, for every good work. So the Greek word behind that word that's there inspired is, is um, theonustos. And it's a fascinating word, theonustos. Because as far as we know, the first time it ever appeared anywhere is right here in 3.16, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16. It's not found anywhere else in the Bible at all. But also, there is not one place in literature where it appears until after Paul used it right here. And normally when you want to understand what, what an ancient word means, you look at the literature, you know, before, uh, what, was the, what was the world using, how was that world using that term in context in other areas uh, during the time it was used. And you can't do that with Theonustos because it just isn't found anywhere. And this is very, 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 very rare. It, it's almost like Paul made up a word to describe how God was active in the creation of Scripture, Theonustos. And there was no other word that he could think of that would adequately describe how God was part of the creation of Scripture. In 1611, King James uh, was translating, they translated Theonustos as inspired. That's actually probably the closest translation to what Paul meant, inspired. A word-for-word word translation would say God breathed, or something like that. The breath of God entered into. Even God blew his spirit into it. I think that's good. And, and this is, the NIV takes this up, and we'll talk about that in a second. But all scripture is God-breathed. And useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And, and, and I'll come back to that. I get questions about Bible translations a lot. And um, there's so many translations. Why are there so many translations? Why don't they just use King James? Um, and, and we need to remember... The Bible was written by many, many different authors over many centuries in three different languages. And unless you want to learn Greek and Hebrew and a little bit of Aramaic, you're going to have to deal with, you got to use the translation, right? And, and so I don't want to get in a lot of detail here, but the, the first translation was in, in English was the King James Version, and it is phenomenal, phenomenal translation. Um, in 1604, it was began, uh, ended in 1611, and it was the absolute perfect translation in 1611. Perfect. I mean, more people have learned the English language by reading the King James Version than any other book at all. I mean, it's just had such a profound effect on English language. So you would think it would be the best version, and a lot of people still use it today. 
But there's, there's several issues, but the big one is we don't use the and thou anymore. And as great as King James is, as, you know, 1611, there are modern versions that, that help us understand in our day-to-day language. And, and I remember when I was in school and we got, um, there was a new translation of the Bible came out and I was working maintenance at, at school. And so there was a guy who had been on the maintenance crew for, for years and years and years and years. And a nice guy had about a fifth grade education. And uh, all of the students, they just sent all these crates of Bibles, this new Bible translation to the school. And we all got, uh, we all got um, a copy of it. And I remember at lunch break, I was sitting next to this guy and I was looking through this and he's like, oh, what's that? And I said, well, it's a new translation of the Bible. And he said, oh, well, why did they do that? And I said, well, this is supposed to be easier to read. And he said, oh, well, let me see that. And so he spent the rest of his lunch break reading through the Bible. And afterwards, he told me, this is the first time I've ever understood the Bible. And so I gave it to him. We used that later in a... (laughs) In a, in a Bible study class, I think it was a disciple class, and it had a picture of a kid on a skateboard, and we called it the Dude Bible. <laughs> that really made an effect on me. There's kind of two poles when it comes to translating the scriptures. And, and, and one is word for word, like God breathed for Theonustos. That's a literal word for word translation. The other is trying to get the cultural description, like inspired. What are they trying to say? And what I mean, you you would think a word for word would be the best, right? But not always. And there's a couple reasons for that. And one is a word for word translation of Hebrew is never going to make sense. And and I have a couple of them, you know, and and Hebrew has like hardly ever grammar. Uh, It's just all it is is prefixes and suffixes. And, and, you know, it's just they stack them and it just word for word doesn't make sense at all. But also the context and, you know, language changes over time. I like to think about, you know, maybe in the 1950s, there was, uh, you know, uh, uh, Martians who, who planted themselves and were kind of studying the English language in our world and everything. And, and in the 1950s, they were trying to figure out our language and, and they thought they finally got it. And then they're listening to some kids, I think of Greece. Greece is the word. And in high school. And they see these kids and they, they, one of them says to the other one, stay cool, daddy-o. And they're like, why is this young person telling this young father to be cold? You know, or, man, that chick is hot. And the young woman they're pointing to really doesn't look like a burning infant chicken. So let's go back to 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is theanustos, by God. It's useful for teaching for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that everyone who believes to God, belongs to God, may be proficient and equipped for every good work. So like I said, the King James and many others translated all scripture as inspired by God. Then you get the NIV, and they say something like, all scripture is God-breathed. Inspired is trying to capture what Paul meant. He meant... The writers were under the influence of God as they wrote. 
they were in some unique way. God was present as they were writing the words down. But Paul literally, literally put two words together that said God breathed. That's word for word. And what's better? God breathed, inspired. Well, what was Paul trying to say when he came up with this word? He put these two words together. Theos is the Greek word for, for uh, God. And pneuma, or spirit, or breath, or wind, is the second half. But it's an active word. It's not even that. It's, it's, it's entering into. It's like breathing into, wind coming into. But here is the deeper meaning that Paul was, I think, really trying to get to. Because he was a rabbi, and he was steeped in Hebrew in the Old Testament, right? And so, you know, he knew in the Adam and Eve story that Adam was just a damach. Adam was just dirt, which is a damach, until God breathed his ruach his pneuma, into that dirt, and it became a living, breathing thing. So much goes back to that story, right? Because there's so much truth in that story. But my point is, and not a boring lecture on etymology, but um, Paul was saying there is a mystery in how the Holy Spirit worked and continues to work through the Holy Scriptures. The closest analogy he could think of was the moment that God breathed breath into dust and life came forth. Now, how do you translate that? If one word needs that much explanation, we're just scratching the surface there, I'll tell you. Um, you know, I think a good translation of the Bible that would adequately describe what's going on would be the size of the Library of Congress. And I don't even think then it would be really sufficient. Because God breathed life into the original experience that these authors are trying to describe. But God also breathes life into the words as they're writing and all the way to the process of these uh, books being collected and, and discerned, what, what's going to go into the Bible as we know it. But then also God breathes life into us as we read the Bible. The Holy Spirit breathed life into Paul as he was writing his letters, breathed life into the words of the, the authors of the Gospels and, and authors of the Old Testament as well. And like I say, the same life is breathed into us as we spend time with the Scriptures. The more we understand the, the larger picture of the Bible, the more we pr prepare ourselves to experience the breath of God. I really believe this. Because God still breathes life through the Holy Scriptures. And that's really, honestly, what I think Paul was trying to describe when he put these two words together. Theonistos. So let's look at the really big picture of the Bible. And what we're going to do, just so you know, we're going to come back and look at the smaller chunks in more detail. But I want us to get the really, really, really big picture. Bible is comprised of two testaments, two covenants, the old and the new. What's a, what's a testament? What's a covenant? It, a, a covenant is, is kind of like a contract between two parties. It's a binding agreement. When we speak of the old covenant... We're talking about the covenant that God made through Moses with Israel. 
through Moses. God said, you are going to be my chosen people, Israel. He said, I will be your God. You will be my people. I will protect you. I will care for you. And if you do your part, I will do my part. The rest of the Old Testament is, is really how Israel either fulfilled or failed in the covenant and then was brought back by God. When we talk about the new covenant, we talk about the, the, God's activity in Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus said at the Last Supper when he shared his meal with the disciples? He, he said, this is my blood of the new covenant when he gave them the wine. My blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sin. What he was saying is, now this story is for all people, not just one people, not just for Israel. I'm opening up this for everyone, and anyone and everyone can be in relationship with God from now on. This covenant was made as Jesus taught through his death and through his resurrection. So where the Jews have one covenant, Christians have this old and new, and the Old New Testament. But there's not just two testaments in the Bible, right? There's 66 books. That's our, we'll talk about this uh, as we go, but we have a little bit different numbering than the, the, the Jews and also the Greeks, Orthodox. But there's 66 books written by different authors over a period of about 1,400 years. So think of the Bible as a library, more than one book. Some of those stories go thousands of years back before that time, though, uh, just orally. So the Bible is written over about a thousand-year period, the Old Testament, the New Testament, probably about 50 years or so. Old Testament focused on ancient Israel, New Testament on Jesus and his continuing presence through the early infant church. Now, I want to walk through the Bible, and it might help. You got your NIV there in the, the pew if you want to just kind of thumb through them if you didn't bring one. Uh, I want to start with Genesis. We'll end with Revelation. We're going to do this in about 10 minutes, so we need to put on our running shoes. Then, <laughs> like I said, we're going to come back and look at these sections in the, the next couple weeks, but I really want to get the big picture. The Old Testament starts with five books. It's called the Torah, the law. The, the, these are the five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And they're traditionally attributed to Moses. Uh, at least they're largely about Moses. The primary focus of the Torah is the law. This is really, really important. We're going to talk about this in the next couple of weeks, but most of the Hebrew Bible is written in poetry. It's not prose. Most of it's poetry. Hebrews loved poetry. They loved word plays and rhymes and acrostics and all this stuff. Poetry is about expressing emotion, right? And, and it has a lot of room for interpretation. It's, it's something that's bigger than the word that it describes. Three quarters of the Old Testament is written in poetry. Basically, the Torah is not poetry. There's like no, I mean, there's a couple snippets in, in the, the first five books of the Bible, but most of it is not. And, and I want you to think of it, that should make sense. If it's law, you do not write, you know, uh, uh, the, 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 the law in poetry. Because that's not what function is, right? So the Torah is law. It starts at creation, 
First 11 chapters of Genesis trace from creation to Abraham, about 1900 BC most likely. We follow Abraham chapter 11 all the way to the end of Jesus. It's a story of Abraham being called to start this people. He's going to be the, the, the father of this special people and how his children are going to be the continued presence of God's special people. From Abraham through his descendants, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, we get the stories of how the Israelites became enslaved in Egypt. They were enslaved for 400 years in Egypt. Then we get to Exodus, around 1200 BC or so. We move from 700 years from Genesis chapter 11 up to Exodus. And from here, Moses is going to be the main figure for the rest of the Torah. Moses, called by God to go to the Egyptian Pharaoh and say, let my people go so they can go out in the wilderness and worship me. But Pharaoh says no, and so God sends what? Plagues, right? We've all seen Charlton Hessen. <laughs> Finally, Pharaoh lets them go. Moses leads them out of Egypt through the Red Sea, and then God takes care of them as they go through the desert to the promised land. But God's prop people, they have a really, really, really hard time following God's desire. And so rather than the couple weeks that it should have been, it, it takes them 40 years to get there. And that theme is going to be massive in the Bible. We wander. Moses climbs Mount Sinai, receives the law. This is written in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. The law was given on stone tablets. God said, if you follow my law, I will be your God. You'll be my people. At the end of Deuteronomy, Moses, standing outside the promised land, looking from this mountaintop, and then he dies. The next figure is Joshua, which takes us into the conquest of Canaan, the promised land. Joshua, Moses' second in command. Joshua leads the Israelites into victory for the promised land. I recently heard somebody describe the book of Joshua as kind of a mix between Game of Thrones and, and House of Cards. <laughs> There's a lot of violence in Joshua. There's a lot of violence in the Old Testament. We're going to talk about that in the next couple of weeks. I get that question a lot. Why is there so much violence in the Old Testament? It seems like there's a New Testament God and an Old Testament God. How do I reconcile that? Those are the types of questions we'll talk about. But on the big picture, the next 12 books from Joshua to Esther describe the stories of ancient Israel from about 1200 B.C. to 450 B.C. Joshua, descri Judges, describes this time that Israel was, was led by Judges. And this was before there were kings. This is really, really important. The judges were more like prophets. But then that turn happens with the book of Ruth. We just finished the book of Ruth last week. Um, we found out Ruth was really the story of kind of a female Job named Naomi. And, and she was an Israelite. They, they left Bethlehem. They left the promised land. They went to Moab during a time of famine. And then she lost everything. And all she came back was with a foreign widowed daughter-in-law, Ruth. And she taught her and the rest of the Israelites about God's sacrificial love. It's a beautiful story. At the end of the story, Ruth marries an Israelite named Boaz. He becomes, uh, they have a kid who becomes the grandfather of King David. That's to set up the stories of King David's monarchy. 
From there, we moved to the stories of the last great judge, and that's Samuel, Shmuel in Hebrew. And Samuel, he ruled over Israel as, as like a prophet from God, not a king, because God was the king, was the point. God's the king of Israel. They didn't have a human king, but the people wanted a human king. They wanted to look like other nations. They wanted to be like other nations. They wanted a king that would lead them in the battle like other nations. And so finally, they wore Samuel down. He anoints a king. His name's Saul. We have to understand that was an affront to God. It was like saying, God, you're not cutting it for us. So, you know, we want a real person that we can see. God had called them to be a special people, not to be like other nations, but they didn't want to do that. They wanted to be like the other nations. So Saul announced, or Samuel announced Saul as king. Saul's name in Hebrew literally means, you asked for it. <laughs> Just like his name, Saul turned his back on God. Next, there's a new king in town, King David. He is the greatest king ever. His story begins, 1 Samuel moves to 2 Samuel, into 2 Samuel, into 1 Kings, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. They're the stories of the kings of Israel who followed David. Some were good. A lot of them were not. And these are kind of the court histories from 900 to 450 B.C., and they describe how Israel is torn in two. They have a north and a south kingdom. And the northern kingdom was destroyed by the Assyrians in 722 BC because the Israelite kings were unfaithful. And they set up altars for other gods. And the southern kingdom destroyed 586 BC. They were restored 50 years later. All of those stories recorded Kings Chronicles. Why? Because the people who wrote them they were trying to understand how God works in the world. And they looked back on their history, and they saw this repeating story over and over and over again. It was the same, same story, different characters, but different. The same story. God would make a covenant. And he would say, you belong to me. And he would say, if you only follow me, I'll be your God. You'll be my people. And the people, they rejoice and they accept the covenant. And they're all like, yes, God, go, God. We'll follow you anywhere, God, wherever you lead. But then their hearts grow cold. And they're just like us. They're like the Israelites wandering around for 40 years in the wilderness. They become distracted. I mean, we're prone to wander, right? And they break covenant. And they follow other gods. And they get themselves lost. And then the people start doing things they knew they shouldn't be doing, and though God withdraws his safety net from them, and then other armies come in from other nations, and the people find themselves destroyed. They find themselves just completely helpless. Finally, they remember God, the God that they pledged to live their lives with, and they cry out to God, God, please help us, please save us. And over and over and over and over and over and over and over, God takes them back. It's, it's just the same story over and over and over again. First Kings, Second Kings, First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, the same story, and it needs to sound pertinent because it's our story as well. How many times do we wander from God? And then God restores us, takes us back, and then we cycle it again. Next is Ezra and Nehemiah. I, I love Ezra and Nehemiah. It's fascinating. Those books are written as the Israelites are taking away 
uh, from the Holy Lands. They're captives. And then after they return, uh, next to the writings, we'll talk about Ezra and Nehemiah as we come back to this. Next to the writings, and this is the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. And you got Job and you got Psalms and Proverbs and Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes called a Kohelet. And, and we'll talk about why. And those, they're fascinating because they really tell the same stories and the same themes, but in poetry. In Psalms, Israel's got this cycle of turning away from God over and over again. It's the same cycle, but now it's in poetry. And it's describing this yearning, this longing when they find themselves away from God. They rejoice in the covenant that God's offering them. And then they cry out in the depths of despair once they have wandered. And then God invites them back and they praise God and things go so well. The same cycle over and over and over again. Next are the prophets. Isaiah to what we'll call the minor prophets. We'll explain that. Uh, and that takes us from 750 to 400 BC. Exact same time frame as Kings and Chronicles. But it's written from a different perspective. And it's in poetry. All of the prophets pretty much are in poetry, and, and uh, that's an important thing to understand. If you're really going to understand the prophets and the Old Testament, three quarters of it is in poetry. Over and over, in the prophets, we find God speaking to the Israelites while they're falling away. And, and God sends prophets, and they all say, you need to turn back. You need to repent. Something horrible is going to happen if you don't turn back to God. It's something bad. And whenever and that happens, there's always, always, always a little bit of encouragement and hope at the end. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all the way to Malachi, the last prophet, they all say, one day God will send you a deliverer. A king from the line and the lineage of David. He's going to be your Messiah, the anointed one. He will take upon himself the sins of the world. That's the promise in all of the books up to 400 BC. Then there is absolute silence for 400 years until Jesus, which takes us into the new covenant. It's really, really, really important to get. It's not a different story. The new covenant, the New Testament, it, it's part of the same story. It completes the first. But the central character is the one that was promised at the end of the First Testament, and that's Jesus, Jesus Christ. The New Testament describes the life, death, resurrection, continuing presence through the Holy Spirit, and the church, which he calls the body of Christ, of the one the Old Testament looked forward to. Matthew's gospel says again and again and again, as it was foretold by the prophets, he, then he outlines how all of the, everything they said, Jesus is living out their prophecies. The New Testament is a continuation of God's story in the Old Testament. New Testament starts with five narratives, just like the Old Testament did with the, the, the Torah. The five gospels, four gospels, and one, one uh, the Acts of the Apostles. The gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, need to be seen as a group. They focus on the life and the teaching and the story of Jesus, but then Jesus' followers in Acts afterwards. Acts is actually written by the same author as Luke. It's volume two of Luke. It's the story of the continuing presence of Jesus through the Holy Spirit in the church. They're called the body of Christ. 
This work starts with Jesus' ascension in 30 AD, ends with the Apostle Paul's imprisonment in Rome in probably 64 AD. Then we have the writings of the New Testament, the epistles. These are real letters written to real people, real Christians. I think that's so important for us to remember. First, they're Paul's letters. They're arranged the longest to the shortest. And they're one-way dialogues written by Paul to churches, people he knew, churches he started, uh, other than Romans. Romans was a community of Christians already together as in a church Paul did not start, but he knew the people. We learn a lot about them at the end of Romans. The other letters, though, other than Philemon, uh, which is written to an individual, I'm really excited. We're going to have a series uh, of all of Paul's prison letters after this, and so it'll take us into the fall. And I've never preached on Philemon. I'm so excited to preach on Philemon. But Philemon, it written to an individual. If you're going to understand Paul, you have to understand, other than Romans, Paul is writing to friends. People, I mean, some of these he, he spent years with these people. He started the church with these people. And, and he hears there's an issue that's trying to split the church that he loves, the people that he loves. And so he's, he's responding to that issue. But often it's like hearing one side of a phone conversation. You don't know what the issue is. You just hear the response. Other than Romans. Next we have Hebrews. That's an anonymous book. It's often attributed to Paul. Uh, written to Jewish Christians, for sure, people who had a huge Jewish background. Then we have the general epistles, like James, John's letters, Peter's letters, Jude, and then we have this amazing ending revelation, probably in 95 AD. Apocalyptic book, I think the most misunderstood in the whole Bible. Seven letters written to seven churches. Very, very, very helpful for us. I think we had a series on that last year. The end of Revelation says... No one should add anything to these words. And, and the early Christians thought, that's a great way to end the book, so we're going to end it. That's the end of the story. There were other works at the time. There was letters, there was gospels, but the early Christians, they decided in order for it to be part of the scripture, it had to be received by an eyewitness to Jesus or someone who got their material from an eyewitness. The history of our lives are the continuing story, though. This is really, really important. It's 28 chapters in the chapter of, uh, in the, the Acts of the Apostles. And I love the notion that we are the continued story. We're Acts 29 as we continue the story of God's work in the world, the Holy Spirit through the church. The Bible includes so many books, but there is a coherent narrative and we're supposed to reflect our lives as individuals and as a community, a faith community, on this huge narrative. I've heard it said that the Bible is, is kind of like the authorized biography of God, not the autobiography. And the important thing is Jesus is the autobiography. Gospel of John begins saying Jesus was the Word made flesh. And he dwelt among us. And literally in Greek, it said he pitched his tent. He, he tabernacled. It's like in the, the, the wilderness journey that God dwelt among them in the tent, in the tabernacle. And, and it, 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 Jesus did the same thing. If you want to know what God's like, you look at Jesus. 
And you do that, how? By studying the Bible, right? And I believe God will breathe life into you as you do this. Our belief statement here at Hillspring is the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed was written before these books were ever collected into a book. And it's called the Apostles' Creed because traditionally it was written by the original apostles and they were describing the material that Jesus taught them. Without a question, it's the oldest faith statement that we have. And it goes back to the earliest, earliest, earliest days of the church directly from the people who learned from Jesus. The Apostles' Creed is our faith statement, but the Bible is our more main source of revelation. It's how we learn about God. It's how we learn about Jesus. How do we learn about the Trinity? But it's the plumb line against everything else, how the rest of our beliefs are measured. And we're going to talk about that a lot next week, how that works. In the words of my grandparents, they wrote this little book. Uh, they wrote a bunch of little books, but Floyd and I own white. Uh, they wrote a book called The Bible, The Wonder Book of the Ages. My dad and I were talking about this uh, several times this week. They wrote, the Bible is a map for the traveler, a staff for the pilgrim, the pilot's compass. Christ is a central compass. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, guide the feet. It's a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, a river of pleasure. Other books are of the earth, but the Bible is from heaven and earth. It's supernatural in origin, inexpressible in value, infinite in scope, divine in authorship, though human in penmanship. It's infallible in authority and inspirational in totality. The Bible is only a dead book until unless you open it up and let the Holy Spirit speak to you and breathe life into you as you read it. You know, every single time I open up the Bible, God speaks to me in a different way. God breathes life. You know, when you discover the Bible, God starts to change your life. When you think about your first Bible, I have a ton of Bibles, and they all mean so much to me. I, have, we, I was a Korean uh, English pastor in a Korean church when I was working on my master's degree, and they gave me uh, one of my Hebrew Bibles. And, and the, the Korean pastor that I um, served with, he was a, a Hebrew scholar. I remember some amazing conversations we had. And I have a Greek New Testament. I got a bunch of Greek New Testaments, but the one that I had that really means so much to me, one of my professors gave to me. I have another one that... Um, I, I was a pastor, I think it was my second church, and this really old school scholar from, uh, he, he had been in the, the underground movement against the Nazis. He was European, he had Tubingdon, the whole thing. And his widow, when I gave, I had his funeral, and she gave me that Bible. And so then about a year or two later, one of my, my second uh, year Greek professor was visiting me, and I showed it to him. And he was like, it was like Pavlov. He was salivating. And I was like, do you want that? He's like, yes, I really do. Because he, he, he was like, every, every page was blank, but they were filled with his notes and they were incredible. I mean, it was just, it was amazing. And uh, then a couple years ago when he retired, he sent me like his library. And, um, and in there was that book. And I just, there's so many Bibles that I have that just, they mean so much to me. But the one that means most to me is this, and it's actually not even a, a real 
is a collection of stories from the Bible. My mom read to this uh, when I was a kid, and it means so much to me. And, you know, these pictures, this is still, you know, these are, this is how, this obviously David being anointed. I mean, this is, I can't tell you how much this Bible means to me. She was my first Bible professor, mom. I have amazing memories of all my Bibles. And they brought meaning into my life, but they're so much bigger than my life. And I've been able to share and read with, you know, people in hospital beds and, and people in marriages breaking up. But not just me. It's over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, people hurting have turned to the Bible. I'm in prisons, in the trenches during war, because the Bible was written for people in need, like you and like me. And it has amazing power, but only if you read it. And so my challenge for you as individuals is you cannot be a deeply committed Christian following Jesus without being a person of the book. And that necessitates reading it in community, growing with others, pushing them, allowing them to push you. It's not enough to go to church once a week and just get your Bible on because we talk about it. You have to open up the book yourself. You have to read it for yourself and read it with your community, and open up your heart to let God breathe life into you. So next week, we're going to look at the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. Week after that, we're going to spend time with the prophets. The week after that, we'll look at the writings. Then we'll turn to the New Testament. We'll look at the Gospels. The week after that, we'll look at Paul's letters. Then we'll look at the rest of the New Testament after that. And I just, I want to ask you to be here and if you can't, like we said last week, uh, we're starting to post a podcast on all of the main podcast things, whatever those mean to you. If you, Trevor told me, Trevor Hompack, wherever you get your podcast, they'll be there, right? And they'll also be on YouTube. Uh, but we're creating a foundation for our discipleship. And if you can't join us in person, just try to be present with us as we go through this material. And I really hope and pray this will be a great platform as we begin preparing for a pilgrimage to the Holy Lands next year. We pray with me. Lord, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for the way that you breathe life into the authors, into the process of collecting them together and that you continue to breathe life through these words into our hearts. Lord, help us to be a people of the book. In your name we pray. Amen.